and welcome to another episode of the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia-China Business Council. On this episode, we take a look at the current state of Australia-China relations and ask whether political bumps in the road affect business engagement and the people-to-people links between Australia and China. In Beijing, I spoke with former Australian ambassador to China, Dr. Jeff Raby, on relations during his tenure as ambassador and what can be done to strengthen the relationship now and into the future. We also discuss how China has changed during Jeff's many decades living in Beijing and his significant collection of contemporary Chinese art. In addition to a distinguished career with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Dr. Jeff Raby also holds a number of non-executive independent director positions with ASX-listed companies. In China, Dr. Raby serves as co-chair of Cause Chambers Westgarth's China practice. He's also a member on advisory boards at the non-for-profit Advance Global, University of Sydney's China Studies Centre, La Trobe University Asia, and the foundation of the National Gallery of Victoria. Jeff's currently archiving his extensive Chinese art collection and curates the first ever Chinese all-female art exhibition outside of China, Swan Sisters, which opens at the Vermilion Art Gallery in Sydney on May 24th, more of which can be found at this episode's show notes at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here in Beijing with former Australian ambassador to China, Dr. Jeff Raby. Thanks for dropping by to the podcast, Jeff. My pleasure, James. Great to be here. So, Jeff, after spending many decades in China in um, the official capacity at the embassy and obviously as the Australian ambassador, in 2018, you remain a resident of Beijing. Um, What is it that's kept you here? Well, after four and a half years as ambassador, having served here in the embassy earlier in the 80s for five years, I've clearly watched... China grow and develop and feel that it's been an enormous privilege in my life to have lived through one of the most um, remarkable developments in human history. Mm. Sometimes we say the 20th century or the last 50 years, but it really is in human history. And so at the end of my term as as ambassador, after 27 years of being a senior public servant, I decided I um, wanted to continue to live in China to continue to bear witness Mm. to the changes and developments in China. And so that's what I've done. I've been fortunate enough to be able to create um, a handy little business for myself Mm. to maintain um, interest in the bilateral relationship and continue to contribute to public uh, advocacy and discussion in Australia around the China-Australia relationship. I've stayed and it's been a very interesting time. I can't believe seven years has gone so quickly. Mm, Right. Going back to the 80s, um, you first arrived in 1986. Um, Is today's Beijing completely unrecognisable from what you saw back in the 80s? Uh, Not completely unrecognisable because uh, fortunately the Ming and uh, Qing built their cities on a very strict grid, Mm. uh, east-west, north-south grid system. So that still exists. Um, and of course there's the historical buildings and the centre of the city, but uh, really yes, it is un- unrecognisable. Uh, back in the 80s there was nothing outside the third ring road. Mm, okay. uh, you felt if you left, you went over the third ring road that you were dropping off the edge of the earth. Right. Uh, we were surrounded by farms on all sides <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you never really ventured out there. Um, and of course everything inside the second ring road was all the traditional hutongs. Mm. They're all intact and so it was a wonderfully romantic city if you're a foreigner living 
here. If um, you were a local, though, it was a very poor, tough life. Uh, in winter, it was cold. There was no proper heating. Uh, poisonous coal uh, waste was used. Uh, food was very scarce during winter. There was only uh, green cabbage. Mm, okay. uh, and today, of course, the prosperity of Beijing is astounding. Right. So um, you were ambassador from 2007 to 2011. How would you describe the Sino-Australian relationship during those years? I, it was also a remarkable period. I mean, I was very lucky to come when I did. I arrived pretty much uh, as the um, resources boom suddenly went stratospheric. It had been building uh, in the early years of that decade, but about the time I arrived, it went through the roof. And mm. uh, demand for Australian commodities uh, was very, very strong. Uh, commodity prices soared. Skyrocket would probably be uh, the right word. Mm. And of course, the Chinese started to invest in Australia to uh, ensure resource security and also to uh, find uses for their rapidly building foreign exchange reserves and, mm. uh, and capital. It was a period of dramatic change, both in China and in the relationship, in terms of size and intensity of the relationship. And Australia was very much at the leading edge of it. For a little while, we were the biggest well, for most of the time I was here, we were the biggest recipient of Chinese outward investment. Mm. We were the biggest recipient of Chinese overseas students. Um, and it, it was a period of, of immense change and development in the relationship. So if we compare that to the current status of the Australia-China relationship, would you say that the role of ambassador to China is, is becoming a, a thornier one? Is it is it more challenging than it was during your tenure? Uh, for sure, although... It's a, never an easy job. Mm. And part of the challenge of being ambassador in Beijing is actually managing Canberra. Right. And, and making sure Canberra uh, doesn't do things which might be um, not really in Australia's best interest in okay. terms of the Australia-China relationship. So I was ambassador during 2009, which was a very difficult year. And I should say another very difficult year in the bilateral relationship. Uh, it partly uh, happened as a result of, um, of uh, Chinelco's attempt to acquire a big stake in Rio Tinto, yep. the subsequent arrest and imprisonment of the Rio Tinto representative, Stern Hu, who mm. was Australian citizen, yep. um, and uh, some very unfortunate statements made by the Australian Prime Minister on a couple of occasions about uh, Tibet and about Xinjiang and human rights. And so you put all that in the mix, and the relationship became very, very difficult. Uh, not as bad as it is today, mm. um, but it was probably the worst year uh, since 1989 in the relationship. Why does it get more and more difficult? Well, the fundamental challenges are that China, as we know, has a very different social and political system. The, the social political organisation is, is really at odds with ours. Yeah. And... Um, that then leads to issues coming up such as human rights, uh, the way the state operates, the uh, access to the Chinese market, particularly for investment, are very, very different ways of operating. And it's inevitable that that will, be, that will create pressures on the bilateral relationship. Why is it getting more and more difficult? Well, as China gets bigger and bigger, uh, those differences actually become more and more important and often become uh, more apparent. And now add to those differences China's adoption of a much more assertive and muscular foreign policy over the time since I stopped being ambassador. Yeah. 
And again, add that to that mix, and you can see why it is difficult and it will only get more difficult. What is necessary then is a very clear and strong narrative about how to manage the bilateral relationship. Mm. And in the past, we've had that. For example, John Howard, when he became Prime Minister in 96, uh, had no experience or exposure to China. Um, he did a few unfortunate things uh, in the early years, and basically China put us into the deep freeze. Mm. Okay. Um, but he quickly came to China. Uh, he saw the astonishing development that was going on and realised that Australia had enormous and enduring interests in a good relationship with China. And in the John Howard way, in a very pragmatic and practical way, set about establishing a good relationship, which he did. Mm. And, you know, you can see the benefits of it. The uh, 2001 Northwest Shelf LNG deal, which was a 25-year contract, was won largely, not, not because of our competitiveness, but because of the personal relationship Howard had built up with then Premier Jurongji. And so the, the challenge is to to recognise the differences, but not let the differences get in the way of the huge common interests that we have. And that's not to say we can't, and we must, we must uh, talk about our differences. We must be very clear about our values and how we operate. But equally, we, we, we should not try and make that um, the top of the talking points or the key issue that we raise every time we meet Chinese. And the other element is for responsible government ministers and leaders to have a positive public narrative about the relationship, because otherwise people say, well, why is China important? Mm. And it's not just the trade numbers. And at the same time, there has to be moderation in public commentary. So, for example, in 2009, where things really went off the rails in the relationship, Australian media in particular, and it sort of encouraged ministers to begin to imply that we did not respect China's legal system. Mm. Now, we may not like it, and the Chinese know we don't like it because it's very different than our legal system, mm. but to have ministers reflect adversely on China's legal processes is a very serious thing and leads naturally to a very strong reaction. Right. Um, I think the example recently of the handling of the Crown dispute was excellent, mm. and it's what you should do, mm. because uh, basically the government said nothing. And by saying nothing, they didn't fuel a media frenzy. And I think the results show that uh, uh, we got a much better outcome than we did in the case with Stern Hu. So, so you mentioned during your time as ambassador, there was some tricky words from the prime minister that made your life a little difficult here. How does that explain the current prime minister using such explicit language in terms of the Australian people rise up and echo of Mao Zedong's declaration of the Chinese state? Mm. Uh, Zhang and Zhang Qilai. Why do you think they went with using such a quote like that? Well, I think the reality is he just made it up on the spot. Right, okay. And um, he was being too clever by half. Mm. And I am pretty sure today he deeply, deeply regrets having done that. Yeah. Now, the thing is, that statement by itself wouldn't have led to this situation. No. Right? And the thing is, in managing this very complex and challenging bilateral relationship... You've got to avoid having a bunching or a confluence of differences and issues. Yeah. So we got through, uh, you know, two oh nine reasonably well until uh, Rudd made some unfortunate comments about 
uh, Tiananmen Square events, and then about the uh, Xinjiang mm. riots. Yeah. And that was in the background of what was being said about Stern Hu. Mm. And so we had a bunching, mm. and that's when the shutters came down, and we were put in the deep freeze. Okay. That's a very important element about managing the bilateral relationship. So Prime Minister Turnbull's comments, were they just a one-off? It would be fine. But they came off the back of Australia adopting, for example, the most strident public high-level position on the South China Sea. A number of other things, and then the, uh, the domestic issues about interference. Take the foreign interference law. Seems like a perfectly sensible idea. I was surprised we never had a law mm. to that effect. Yeah, But it's been presented both by the media and through the Prime Minister's statements as really being about China. It's very explicit. Explicit. Whereas the law has to be non-discriminatory. Sure, yeah. And it, it will be non-discriminatory. Yeah. So in many ways, this is very unnecessary. It is a classic misunderstanding. And I think it comes also because there is not enough high-level interaction and engagement between Australian leaders and Chinese leaders. Mm. There's another point to this, which is that what's happening today in the Australia-China relationship is a, a, a small fragment of a big global development, and that is the changing world order. Right. The unipolar moment in the world where one dominant power, the US, which prosecuted a global liberal internationalist agenda is over, mm. finished, gone, it's history. Uh, the new order hasn't emerged. It's most unlikely to be a bipolar order with the US and China. It will be some form of a multipolar order. But we are in that transitionary phase mm. and our senior policy makers and policy strategists, I believe, are struggling to come to terms with how we manage the China relationship in the context of a new world order where the unipolar moment has gone. Do you see evidence on the ground here in China? So when there are political challenges between Australia and China, do you see this affect the economic relationship? Uh, not as yet. Okay. Uh, the, the, as far as I can see, there's no immediate in, indication of that. I think if it drags on, it will obviously have a dampening effect. Uh, and the areas most likely to be affected are uh, you know, education, tourism, inward investment. Yeah. But uh, look, I was at a meeting with an SOE um, today, and one of the first things they wanted to have is reassurance that Australia is still welcome. Chinese investment. Mm. So when you're competing with other countries, it's not very helpful if the first question they ask is, well, are we still welcome in Australia? Right, okay. So down the track, you may see uh, some effects. Is there a country Australia can look at that has a, a best practice in managing its China relationship? Well, uh, the audience can't see it, but I'm smiling when you ask me that <laughs> question. We were right. the model. Yeah. We were for so many countries okay. the model. Mm. Um, and I remember the Canadians during my time as ambassador coming to see me to talk to me about how we manage the Australia-China relationship. Right. Okay. Canada managed to mismanage its relationship for decades with mm. China, yeah. and it did suffer economically as a result. I think Canada's got itself uh, on track pretty much now. But yes, we were the model, and I think people, other countries are looking at us asking what's gone wrong. Mm. Why haven't you been able to adapt and keep up with the changes in China? I think every country will manage the relationship in its own way. And I, I don't think it's helpful to think of models. I can understand why Canada looked at us. 
or other countries at that time. But I think we need to look a bit more at our past mm. and how we did it then and see if it's still relevant to today. So do you think there's anything Australia can do in the, in, in, in the short term to improve the relationship? Because much of the problem is at the high political level. Mm. It will need a high political response. Yeah. And it would be enormously helpful um, if the Prime Minister of Australia would present a balanced narrative mm. about the relationship. It doesn't have to say everything's great, but I think we need to get back to that sort of John Howard formula where, uh, yes, we have differences, yeah. uh, but the differences should not be allowed to get in the way mm. of the huge areas of common interest. Mm. And to recognise that it's the same for China. We matter a lot to China and they want a good relationship with us. The basis is very sound mm. and very deep. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's deep because of the massive economic complementarities between the countries, uh, the people-people engagement, although I've always been critical of the lack of investment by Australia in the cultural dimensions of the relationship. Mm, right. Okay. Because I think that brings out the contemporary reality mm. of what you're dealing with, the contemporary reality of China, uh, and also helps people in Australia understand the complexity of Chinese society. Yeah. This is not a country of automatums that mm. are just uh, doing the Communist Party's bidding. Yeah. It's a highly individualistic, highly creative country. And I think if people had have looked at the cultural richness and creativity a, a decade or so ago, they wouldn't be surprised today of the tremendous entrepreneurial creativity, whether it's ant finance or the latest thing Alibaba's doing or JD.com or uh, Mobike or the sharing economy. It comes out of a creative society. You can see that best, I think, through culture and the arts. In a time where Australia doesn't have a, f a firm China policy, what would you say China's Australia policy looks like? We matter less to China than we did. We, we had a very important role some time ago. China looked to us to be an interlocutor, not a bridge. I mean, that's, there's never been that possibility or even wish on either side. But, but an interlocutor where they could help understand the West better and who think that we were a moderating influence on the behaviour of other countries. Yeah. And I think that was, that was right. Mm. And we did things China really admired. I mean, we led the Cambodian peace settlement 20 years ago and we created APEC. And although China had to be sort of dragged into APEC initially, they see immense value in it and support it very, very strongly. We were very important in China's accession to the WTO a backstory that's not really known mm. uh, outside. And we played a very important role in all these stages of China's reform and open-door policy, there's no question. Mm. I mean, they came down and studied our banking sector reforms, our privatisation. They've studied us in depth yeah. because they've seen that we have lessons through our own experience that's relevant to theirs. Mm. I think all that matters less now, and okay. we have to, again, be very careful that we don't reduce the relationship to a pure transactional one. And I think that's part of the problem we have in Australia. We think about the relationship far too much in terms of exporting and getting some investment, even though now we seem to be ambivalent about how much investment we want and in which areas. Mm. And I think uh, we need to, again, broaden the way we present ourselves and that China thinks about us. More generally, I would like to see Australia return to what we once did and that was very effective, what we used to call middle power diplomacy, where we were in the region actively creating uh, new institutional arrangements, uh, such as the Bali, pe uh, Bali people smuggling process in the early 2000s, 
I've, I've mentioned APEC, uh, many things we've done in the region, often very pragmatic areas, say cross-border policing efforts, a whole raft of things where we had been a very active middle power in the region, shaping regional architecture mm. and doing things that China ultimately saw was in its interest. Mm. That would give us much more weight as well. But you see, now China is as big as what it is. It doesn't have to wait around for others to initiate and lead on these things. And I think the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank is an excellent example of China trying to reform the IMF, trying to reform the World Bank, getting nowhere and say, OK, guys, we'll set up our own international financial institution. Switching to one of your other clear passions now, thinking of the Chinese art scene, you've amassed a significant art collection over the years. Would you see Beijing as still the centre of the Chinese art scene? Yeah, um, I think it still is. Uh, There's a very high concentration of artists, of art colleges, of galleries, of uh, collectors. And it's like a lot of these things, once something, it's like a city, once it gets to a certain size, it gets critical mass. You know, it keeps getting bigger, and I think that's the case with Beijing. Having said that, I think Shanghai is really starting to uh, provide a challenge to, to Beijing. Yeah. And it's providing a challenge because um, the Shanghai government's prepared to put real money into it. Okay. So in Beijing, where the government's busily going around tearing down Artist Village, Yeah to do what, who knows, build more apartments that'll be empty, I don't know, or shopping malls. Uh, Shanghai's actually started to go in the opposite direction. Mm. I'm not sure if Shanghai will ever eclipse Beijing as the centre of the contemporary art scene and culture more widely, but it's certainly going to give Beijing a run for its money. What's it like to be a Chinese artist today? On the one hand, there's obviously a lot of material, there's a lot of changes in China that can be commented on through art, but then on the other hand, freedom of expression has been curtailed over the last 10 years. What's it like to be a Chinese artist at the moment? I think, uh, I mean, you're right, there has been tightening up on freedom of expression and people are aware of that. That's mainly in the social media space mm. and that's been quite noticeable. But obviously the mood is not optimistic about future liberalisation there's not a sense of a new creative dynamic. Mm. So I think what's been happening here has had a dampening effect on, if you like, the enthusiasm amongst the artists and the sense of being on the frontiers of something that's going to be really new. Having said that, many of the artists, one of their roles, which is social commentary, and find ways to make social commentary which doesn't get them into trouble, basically. And some of it actually leads to very interesting new art and that's their creative uh, outlet. So even in, I'm not saying China's like this, but even in highly repressive regimes, some arts flourish precisely because of the repression. How extensive is your art collection exactly? Um, I'm just preparing a catalogue, and I've got, I think, about 220 pieces in the catalogue, and I think all up there might be about 300 pieces. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's a hassle because you can't move easily with that sort of collection. Right. Um, and, and, and what are your plans for the catalogue? Plan for the catalogue, I hope to publish in the next couple of months. Okay. It's purely privately funded by myself and uh, to bring it all together and to develop a narrative around the collection. One day, I would hope that maybe I can donate the whole collection to a public institution oh, in right. Australia. Okay. I think it's an important historical collection that begins... In the early 1980s, when the art movement first began, uh, my last purchase was just recently. So I think there are very few collections, even internationally, that have that continuous 
run of over 30 years sure. of collecting and collecting amongst the same sort of group of artists, not right. the same artists specifically, but the same sort of group of artists. Uh, unfortunately, I, I missed a lot of the 90s. I have some from the 90s, but I missed a lot of the 90s. And uh, that's when some artists made huge names for themselves and their prices went stratospheric in the early 2000s. Had I had even one of those, I wouldn't be sitting here chatting to you now. But mm. <laughs> Can you see the story of China during those decades by looking through your collection? Well, pretty much. Um, the curator, David Smith from Melbourne, as a matter of fact, I think he's done an extremely good job at drawing out that narrative story right. and the way he's ordered the collection. I think anyone who looks at the catalogue will see that. And it's also a contribution by me back into the art world because precisely for that reason that it, it tracks the social and political developments over the last 30 years. Mm. It has a pedagogic value as well as an artistic value. You have a show coming up in Sydney later this year? Yeah, first, uh, very soon, uh, next couple of weeks. Uh, first um, uh, show I've ever curated starts at the Vermilion Gallery in Hickson Road, um, Walsh Bay in Sydney. And uh, it's called Sworn Sisters. And the exciting thing about this, it is the first ever all-female contemporary Chinese art exhibition to be held in Australia. It might be one of the few in the world. Mm. It has it features some internationally renowned Chinese contemporary artists and some very famous ones, plus uh, some emerging young Chinese female artists who have enormous promise. It's a great, uh, it's a great exciting collection, and the purpose of it is is social comment on my behalf. I want to challenge the stereotypes of um, Chinese women. Chinese women as only housemakers, passive spouses, tiger mothers, right. uh, savers, by showing, again, a very complex pattern of Chinese women mm. who push the boundaries, challenge convention, take risks with their art. And it wasn't the intention, because the situation between Australia and China, when all this was conceived over a year ago, uh, hadn't deteriorated to where it has. But mm. maybe I'm naive, but I do hope that it will help contribute to improving the relationship between Australia and China. Because what it will do is show Australians that Chinese are not automatons, autonomous machines, or something running around at the behest of the Communist Party. Right. And I think if people again come to see the complexity of contemporary China, they'll understand that the glib phrases and assertions and so on that are so often made in Australian media simply do not hold. And I think there's maybe a difference between saying that China is a complex country and really understanding it and yeah. really grappling with the fact that you can never really understand China, but it's about just getting yourself around that complexity step by step. Yeah, and well, you've lived here, James, you know, and it really is about opening your mind to it. Uh, you're absolutely right. You can't ever convince yourself that you're going to understand it. You'll understand elements of it. But again, one of the difficult and confusing things about living in China and being associated with it and trying to understand it is that at any one time, all things are happening at once. Mm, yeah, sure. So there's multiple currents running in opposite directions at the same time. Mm. Finally, you've um, travelled widely around China. I believe you committed as ambassador to visit all provinces in China? I did, all 31. All 31, I'm right. the only Australian ambassador to visit all 31 provinces in China, officially. Okay, right. I, I visited <laughs> many for holidays and so on. It wasn't easy because when you're ambassador, you don't have a huge amount of discretionary time. Right. Because you've got visitors coming, you've got to travel with business people or, or, or ministers, and 
your ability to freely choose where to travel is, is, is somewhat constrained. A lot of people have obviously been to Forbidden City, Great Wall, all these you know, huge historical sites. What lesser known places in either Beijing or Greater China would you recommend for the Australian visitor to China? One of, one of the distinguishing features of my time as ambassador is that I really went out to all these places because I realised that uh, the story in China was no longer the East Coast, no longer the Eastern Seaboard. China was expanding in all of its provinces so rapidly. And also it made sense for Australia to start to look at these places. In many ways, there's less competition for us. You know, Shanghai, Beijing, we're competing with the rest of the world. But in these other places, they were new and opening. And so that's really was my thrust and why I justified and did all of that travel. And I've always loved Sichuan province. Okay. And I'm responsible for the um, consulate being open in Chengdu. Oh, right. But it took me four years arguing with Canberra okay. to do it. And the decision was taken before I left, but the opening was actually after I left. Yeah. But I'll mention one place in um, uh, Sichuan because it is boutique. It's called Zhejin. And it's, gee, it's nearly two and a half or three hours out of Chengdu by road. But I went there on a business-related visit and I discovered amazing things. And one reason why I was excited by it was that is the site of the first LNG, liquid natural gas. Um, oh, right, okay. And uh, there's a, a salt sea water table underneath the hard rock, and they used to drill down through it to get the salt. And okay. salt was more valuable than gold for a thousand years. And, uh, and as they were taking the salt, flames would come out and catch fire and then they realized there was an invisible thing chi gas right and then they started using bamboo pipes and piping it and then using the gas oh bamboo pipes bamboo pipes right. and and then using the gas um to uh, burn off their salt and the whole economy of Zergin was based on salt i would say burn off the salt to evaporate the liquid to leave the salt behind yeah they were using the lng so it was it was a sort of closed ecologically sustainable process but uh, zergin was incredibly wealthy despite being unbelievably isolated because of the salt industry right up until the late 19th century oh wow so some fantastic architecture from the wealthy uh, zergin salt merchants and the zergin salt guild building is a huge museum now but it's the original building and really needs to be seen so that's one i do love from the other side of the country Sichuan Bana okay. in Yunnan province okay. with a remarkable terraced rice paddies but it's also where pura cha pura tea comes from mm. and you can still see the oldest uh, pura tea tree in China and um, by way of contrast I could talk all evening yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I do love uh, Kashgar in Xinjiang I first travelled there by land all the way from Beijing in 1989 and it was four days by bus that kept breaking down through the Takla Market Desert to get to Kashgar. Today it's like three hours or two and a half hours by fast train from yeah. Uramuchi. Yeah. And then it was a completely untouched mud brick Silk Road oasis. And it was so remote and so romantic. And you've got the Pamir Mountains on a clear day. It just looked superb. Um, anyway, I mean, it's been developed and redeveloped and so much of the charm's gone, but well, the architecture's gone, but it still remains quintessentially what it's always been, a major Silk Road trading oasis. Mm. Majority Uyghur people and the Uyghur culture is, is, is a superb culture 
and it's great fun to be there and you can buy terrific carpets from my friend Abdul at the carpet shop okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks for dropping by Jeff and we really look forward to that catalogue coming out later in the year my pleasure James thanks very much and please uh, everyone come to the exhibition My sincere thanks to Jeff for taking time out of his busy schedule to share his experiences in China on the podcast. For further information regarding Jeff's upcoming show Sworn Sisters at the Vermilion Art Gallery in Sydney on May 24 and his off-the-map China tourist destinations, please visit this episode's show notes at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. As per usual, if you know someone who's commercially engaged with China or a keen China enthusiast, please pass on the podcast and be sure to check out our previous episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening and until next time, Zai Jian.